Okay, I think the only only announcement that I have is just to remind people about the uh, planned trip to Israel this summer. That information and the brochure is on the Dean Bible website, and there's uh, still room. We have, I don't know, we have 18 or 20 who have uh, already signed up. We're going to try to take between 30 and 35, so there's still room. There's other people who have thought about it, but this is going to be... Of the trips that I've taken over there, this is going to be, um, I think, one one of the best. I'm going to add some features that we haven't done before. I've got uh, about three or four different speakers that I'm setting up, and I'm trying to get a retired IDF or uh, IAF general. IDF is the Israeli Defense Force. And the IAF is the Israeli Air Force. Thank you very much. <clears throat> uh, so we will have uh, that as well as some other interesting people. In fact, Howard Grief, who is probably the leading expert on uh, international law and the borders of Israel, is uh, – I've been corresponding with him for about a year, and he has agreed to come and give us a lecture one night. And so that it will be, um, <clears throat> that will certainly be a, f- a tremendous feature for this for this trip. But that will be in in um, in June. Seems like there was something else I was going to announce. Well, this is Tuesday night. I came back from. Uh, Ukraine, which is eight hours difference on Friday, and traditionally this is my worst night. If I don't fall asleep in the next hour, or my brain may go to sleep, so if I just suddenly hit a silent moment there and my eyes glaze over and my brain goes off into space, you'll know why, because my body really thinks it's about 3 o'clock in the morning and it's not ready to teach the word, so... It's always exciting about this time. Last night at this time, I was, I couldn't keep my eyes open. I was just falling down in front of the television. So tonight, I'm a little better. I just have to make it an hour, and I'll be asleep by 9. I hope you're not asleep within the next hour. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then um, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we can come together to study your word this evening, that we can fellowship around the study of your word, the teaching of your word, that we can be challenged by what you have revealed to us, and that we can just uh, probe the depths of your word and come to a greater understanding of your work in the founding of the church from its birth on the day of Pentecost in AD 33 up to the present, watching how God the Holy Spirit has overseen the growth and development of the church as well as especially in those early 
foundational years. Father, give us confidence in your word that it is truth and that as we study your word and come to learn it, and God the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to understand the truth that is there, that we may apply it in our lives and that it will uh, establish in our lives a testimony before not only other human beings but also before the angels. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 tells this story about a husband and wife team, Ananias and Sapphira. And what's interesting in this section as we come to these first 11 verses, a lot of times people can hit this and go, well, wait a minute. They, they just sort of look at this in isolation as this event that has to do with Ananias and Sapphira and their desire to defraud the church and to lie about their uh, graciousness to the church and to uh, act as if they're doing something that they're not not really doing for their own for their own efforts, and that's certainly part of this. I mean, there's certainly some sub themes in this section dealing with the um, lying and deception, dealing with uh, greed, dealing with their uh, the, the, their abuse of grace and the the whole concept of giving is laid out in the New Testament. But that's not what why Luke puts it here. Those are certainly elements within this section, but that's not why it's here. And it's always important to think in terms of a the structure of of any book in the in the scriptures as to what the author, why the author includes certain things, how it fits within his his basic theme. And as we have observed numerous times as we've gone through Acts is that the book of Acts describes the birth of the church in Acts 2 and its uh, initial expansion and development during the first 30 years of the church age up through the first imprisonment of the Apostle Paul uh, when he goes to Rome. And there, it's a transition book. If we look at the overall structure of, of the book of Acts, you see that at the very beginning the key leader is the uh, Apostle Peter. And we look at the outline, the structure of the book, and uh, Peter is the dominant uh, person up through the seventh chapter, even though uh, the seventh chapter focuses on Stephen, it's still the key leader is, is Peter. Paul gets saved in chapter 8, so there's a focus on, or excuse me, Paul gets saved in chapter, you know, Paul, we get introduced to Saul and the persecution of the church in chapter 8, then it goes to Peter in the second half of that chapter, and then the focus goes back to, to Paul in chapter 9, and then in chapters 10 and 11, the focus goes back to Peter. Uh, in chapter 12, there is, uh, uh, again, emphasis on Peter. Chapter 13 comes back to uh, the Apostle Paul in the first missionary journey, chapter 13 and 14. And then in chapter 15, there's a conference in Jerusalem known as the Jerusalem Council. Uh, and Peter, again, is the, is the focal point. And then from <clears throat> the end of chapter Chapter 15, the emphasis shifts, back, shifts to the Apostle Paul 
and we don't hear anything more about about Peter. So it's sort of like the first uh, six or seven chapters. It's Peter, 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 Peter. Then it's Paul, Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul, 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 Paul. And so there's a transition from Peter to Paul, a transition from Jerusalem to the Gentile nations, a transition from the emphasis on the Jews to an emphasis on the expansion among the Gentiles. And that is what the writer is is telling us, is how, going back to Acts 1.8, as I have on the title slide, is the expansion of the church under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts uh, part of the earth. As we read through Luke as a whole, Luke, I mean, as we read through Acts as a whole, Luke gives us a various uh, progress reports, and these develop as we go through the uh, uh, the book of Acts, and as we get come to the end of Acts chapter four, we get another another progress report. And we've covered that in detail last time. We've covered other things related to the uh, surface appearance here that if you just sort of uh, look at things at at, at face value, it looks as if there's some sort of communal socialism kind of thing going on. But once you look at the scripture, fit things within context, that is and uh, accurately interpret a couple of these verses and accurately translate, especially verses uh, 34 and 35, you understand that that is not what is going on here uh, at all. And we're getting, but we're getting a parallel and an enhancement of the initial progress report from Acts chapter 2. So I thought that what I would do to begin with is just give us this little flyover because when we get a uh, little bit more of an aerial look at, at the, the structure of Acts, then we see why this episode with Ananias and Sapphira is included and its, its, uh, its function within the growth of the church. At the end of Acts 4, we read, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So there's this emphasis on a unity, a, a, a un- really in terms of all of history, a unique unity in the early church. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So they're not emphasizing their personal rights to property over against the desire to share with those who are in need. That's the emphasis. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So there's an emphasis on the power of, that the apostles have two ideas there, the power, which comes from God, the Holy Spirit, and the role of the apostles, which I haven't stressed that much in going through Acts to this point. So there's this this uh, reference to the power uh, displayed by the apostles in Acts 5. Um, when we get down to verse 12, at the conclusion of the Ananias and Sapphira episode, Luke says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among among the people. So this emphasis on the miraculous that, that is being done through the Holy Spirit um, uh, and the apostles, not through all of necessarily through any other Christians. We can't say that no others did this because we know that there was evidence from both Philip and um, 
and Stephen that there were others that did uh, perform some miracles, but it's prime. The emphasis is on the apostles to establish their their authority as the foundation of the church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians two twenty that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. So there's the emphasis on the the, the power that God the Holy Spirit gives the apostles, but it's point. It, it's the ultimate focal point is on their witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke goes on to say, And great grace was upon them all, nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and when they sold them, they brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And this laying at the apostles' feet is stated here and again when Barnabas sells some property in verse 37, says he brought the money laid at the apostles' feet. And this emphasizes the authority in, of the apostles and their role. It's all about the apostles. And this should really come through here in these, in these chapters that it's, it's always about the apostles and apostolic authority. Verse 36, and uh, Joseph, who was also named uh, Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, so they gave him that nickname, that indicates something else. Here, the apostles give him a new name, and that becomes the name by which Barnabas is known throughout the rest of the book of Acts and down through history. Nobody ever refers to him as Joseph. So, so it shows this this authority that the apostles had, and again, the, 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 that's what Luke is emphasizing here. Uh, but that authority that the apostles have is is backed by the uh, authority of God, the Holy Spirit. He's the unseen power that is behind the apostles. Now, I want you to turn with me back just a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 2, verse... Um, 41. In Acts 2.41, Luke gives his first progress report. And in that first progress report, again, he is emphasizing the authority of the apostles. And this is what he has done from the beginning in chapter chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 26, uh, they... Um, <clears throat> We have this emphasis on the on the apostles. They're the ones who are gathered around Jesus just as he uh, ascends to heaven. It is to the apostles that Jesus gives his parting command in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is after that that Peter then uh, gathers the believers together in the upper room to come to a decision about replacing replacing Judas. And the last statement that is made in verse 26 is that they cast their lots. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, remember, there's no chapter division. There are no verse numbers in the original. The last noun in the first chapter is the plural noun apostles. The next statement is, in the next paragraph, as we would divide it, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That uh, third-person plural pronoun, they, has to be a reference back to the apostles. 
It's not talking about the 120 who were in the upper room, as I pointed out when we did our study, but it refers to the 11 apostles. The emphasis is on establishing the apostolic credentials through the coming of the Holy Spirit in this miraculous way uh, as, as we covered when we went through chapter 2, that there was this sound that came from heaven like a tornado. It was like a train coming through. Uh, we know what a tornado is like here. They don't have tornadoes uh, there in Israel, but it's, uh, it would have be, been the same thing. And they, that, this noise was heard all over Jerusalem. And everybody came running to find out what was making this particular noise. So God was very clear in giving objective evidence of the uh, work that he was about to accomplish. And then the next thing we're told in verse 4 is that they were all filled uh, with the Holy Spirit. And I pointed out in looking at this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, as we have it in Acts, that this is a different word than we have in in Ephesians 5.18, which is a command uh, of the verb plerao to be uh, filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And what we see in Acts usually is a descriptive phrase to indicate their their uh, a special, uh, unique work of God the Holy Spirit among the apostles. Uh, typically, it's used uh, in in context preceding some sort of speaking, and it's the phrase from based on the Greek verb pimplemi, not plerao, but pimplemi, and it's followed by a genitive, which is usually descriptive or uh, indicating content that they're full of the Holy Spirit, and this is a description of a unique ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to understand that because when we get into Acts 6 here and we get into the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, we're told that Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie. And that is stated that way because it is an intentional contrast with what God the Holy Spirit is doing, and it opens up our understanding of what Luke begins to describe here in terms of the angelic conflict and the assault of the uh, of Satan specifically and directly upon the early infant church. So this uh, at the beginning we have God the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, this unique work. Among the apostles, they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's that emphasis on the Holy Spirit. But he's doing this primarily with the apostles because he's establishing apostolic authority in this early stage of the um, of the church. Chapter 2 talks about uh, there are various signs and wonders that are performed by the uh, by the apostles in verse 22. And that this continues to establish their credentials. And verse 22 mentions uh, Jesus was attested by many signs and wonders. And then as we get to the end of chapter uh, chapter 2, uh, there is a description that the apostles are performing various signs and wonders in verse 43. And the next thing that happens, the next uh, episode is in Acts 3 when Peter and John go to the temple and heal the lame man. 
And that forms the foundation for all of the events in chapter 3 and chapter 4, which ends with our summary statement. So all of this fits together, and the focal point that the Apostle Paul puts in here is on apostolic uh, authority. So the uh, authority of the apostles is, is reinforced in this section. And as we look at the overall structure of Acts, we see that there's this emphasis on the uh, apostles being present every time uh, the church expands. You have the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and the spokesman is Peter. And you have the 11 there who all uh, are full of the Holy Spirit and who speak in languages that they haven't learned, and and you have the, the emphasis on the miracles there. And then in Acts uh, 8, we see the next expansion that comes after persecution comes on the, on the uh, early church in Jerusalem. They finally scatter. What did Jesus tell them to do? He said to be my witnesses in, Ju- in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But they just camped out in Jerusalem. They're not getting out into Judea and Samaria at all. So God comes along as God is wont to do. You don't want to obey me. Okay, I'm going to put a little pressure on you. So you have to make these decisions. And with the persecution that arose in uh, Acts 8, uh, they're forced out of Jerusalem. And as they go out from Jerusalem, then you see the expansion of the church to Samaria, which is north of Judea. Now, remember, in the early church, let me see, I've got a little, I don't have much, no, that's not much of a map to go to. Uh, in the early church, or in, in, in uh, Second Temple Judaism, the Samaritans were viewed as a, as a mixed-breed people. They were not viewed as Jews. They were an ethnic mix like the modern uh, so-called uh, Palestinians, the Arab, uh, Arab mix that, um, that lives in that area. And there was such a prejudice against them by the, by the Jews that rather than taking the direct route of walking from Jerusalem straight north to Galilee, they would cross over to the east side of the Jordan and go up in the Transjordan through uh, the region called Perea. And then they, after they got north of Samaria, then they would cross back over into Galilee because they didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. That's why the, uh, the, the apostles were so astonished when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. And no self-respecting Jew would have anything to do with a, with a, with a Samaritan. In fact, the, the prejudice and the, the ethnic prejudice that a Jew had toward the Samaritans would probably rival the uh, racial prejudice that any Ku Klux Klansman would have towards an African-American. They just despised, completely despised the Samaritans. So when the gospel goes to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, we're told that, that, um, uh, that they responded, but it's not until Peter and John come in Acts 14 through 16 that they um, had received the Holy Spirit, which shows that the Samaritans can't be viewed as some sort of secondary work of God. They received the Holy Spirit through Peter and John the same way that everybody else did on the day of Pentecost, which, which brings this unity into 
into the church. And so in Acts 8.14, we read, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. So the Holy Spirit does not come independently of apostolic authority. He comes and the church expands under the uh, authority and direction of the apostles. So you can't, this prevents fragmentation in the early church. People can't start developing schisms and say, well, I'm a Samaritan, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm Jewish, I'm Gentile, and have three separate churches. Now, later, that kind of thing is going to happen, but it's prevented in the, at the beginning of the early church. So the Holy Spirit doesn't come until they, the apostles, until Peter and John come, and <clears throat> then when they lay hands on them, uh, Acts eight seventeen says they receive the Holy Spirit. So it's the, that authority of the apostles that uh, is established in this part of Acts. Now let's look at this this progress report in Acts two forty one and look at the similarity between this progress report and the one we read at the end of Acts 4. Uh, Verse 41, we read, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. These are those who responded to Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So we have a specific number in terms of the expansion and foundation of the early church on that day. Verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine. Not, you know, Luke doesn't say in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, in the doctrine of the Old Testament, in the doctrine of Jesus. It's in the apostles' doctrine because the, uh, it is what the apostles taught as revealed to them through God the Holy Spirit that lays the foundation for, for the church. Uh, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking bread and pears. Then what happens as a result of that? Fear comes upon them. We're going to see this again in Acts, uh, Acts chapter 5, that, that as a result of what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, we're told that, um, that fear, verse 11, uh, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who, who heard these things. Then, um, there's an emphasis on the signs and wonders. Uh, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, not independently of the apostles. It's not just every Joe Christian who's running around speaking in tongues or performing miracles. This is primarily associated with the apostles and those who are directly associated uh, with the apostles, such as Stephen uh, and Philip. In verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's the same thing that is said at the end, at the end of Acts 4, but it's, it's expanded. We get a little more detail on how that uh, actually happened. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This is a summary statement of what they did. It is not a prescription per se but it shows the generosity and the grace orientation of the early church in their desire to take care of of one another. Um, Verse 46, Luke says, So continuing daily with one accord. Again, this emphasis on the unity that they had in the uh, early church. They continue with one accord where? 
in the temple. So they're still meeting in the temple, and we'll see the same thing in Acts 4, because in Acts 4 it talks about the fact that they're, uh, they're, they're still meeting uh, in the temple. When we get down into, um, uh, in, on into Acts chapter 5, verse uh, 12, states that they were uh, meeting with one accord in Solomon's porch. This is the colonnade area that surrounded the outer courtyard, uh, the courtyard of the Gentiles in the in the temple. So there's by Acts Acts five, they're still meeting in the temple, um, and they are. Uh, Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So it's it's not just the 3,000. There is an ongoing uh, growth factor that is uh, the result of the work of God the Holy Spirit. As he continues, his his uh, the, the, the real power behind the apostles, of course, is the, is the Holy Spirit, and it, it acts as as much the story of the Holy Spirit as it is that of the apostles. So while the authority of the apostles is emphasized, what lies behind that is the role of and the authority of God the Holy Spirit as the divine power behind the work and the authority of the apostles. So Acts 1.8 lays that foundation in Jesus' parting statement right before the ascension. And then in Acts 2.4, we have the mention that they're all uh, full of the Holy Spirit and speak in languages. Then Peter, in his explanation of this event, after quoting from Joel, uh, the end of Joel 2, says that uh, Jesus, having <clears throat> after he was exalted to the right hand of God and having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus. So there's, he connects Jesus and the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Then the next mention of the Holy Spirit comes in our progress report in Acts 4.31. When they had prayed, the uh, place where they were assemb- uh, assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with, fu- filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that indicates content. That's not what it says in the Greek. It's they're full of the Holy Spirit. It's a description of this unique ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And what happens immediately after that? They spoke the word of God with boldness. And if you remember when I first taught on this, back in the first chapters of Acts, I went back and showed how this phrase, using the word pimplemi plus the genitive, is described of Mary, uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, is full of the Holy Spirit and speaks. Mary is full of the Holy Spirit and speaks. Elizabeth is full of the Holy Spirit and speaks. This is, uh, always seems to be associated with some sort of speaking activity. Uh, even when the, after, uh, the Apostle Paul is saved, uh, and he, it says something about him being full of the Spirit. You gotta read two verses later before he starts talking. But in every time you have this phrase used, there is speech that, uh, articulation witnessing of the Spirit. That's what that, that, that speech is. So, um, we have to understand this within the framework of of, uh, of Luke. And the Holy Spirit is foundational to understanding what happens here in Acts uh, 5, uh, 3. Peter accuses Ananias of um, lying to the Holy Spirit in verse 3. Verse 9, he says, Why is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. Now, here's an important doctrine that, that is revealed in these verses, 
and that is the doctrine of the personhood of God the Holy Spirit. This was a debate in earlier generations uh, coming out of the 19th century because there were those among the those uh, in Protestant liberal theology who were uh, denying the personhood of God the Holy Spirit, that this is just a reference to the to God the Father's uh, spirit, not a separate autonomous person. But you can't lie to an impersonal force. You can't lie to uh, something that is not a specific individual person. And so because they, uh, Ananias, lied to the Holy Spirit, this is evidence of his, of his personhood. But we also see something interesting in verse 9. Uh, verse 9 is, of course, a reference back to verse 3. And what does uh, Peter say to Sapphira? He said, why is it that you two agreed to test who? The Spirit of the Lord. Now, there are people who, and theologians, who think that when you read this phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, uh, that this is, again, dealing with uh, some sort of impersonal force, or this is talking about the Spirit of Jesus. But this is, uh, here it's clear from the uh, juxtaposition of Holy Spirit in verse 3 and the phrase Spirit of the Lord in verse 9 that the phrase Spirit of the Lord is just another title for the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, and that you can't test an impersonal force, you can't lie to an impersonal force, so together these verses emphasize the uh, personhood of God the Holy Spirit, but even more than that, they're emphasizing the role, uh, the, the profound role of God the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and the health of the church. And this is one thing that distinguishes the church age from earlier dispensations is this uh, unique and distinct role of God the Holy Spirit as the source of power in the church and in the expansion of the church, that it's not based on methodology. It's not based on some sort of using the right sort of evangelistic uh, tool to uh, uh, expand the church. Not that uh, there are, aren't, uh, <clears throat> not that God the Holy Spirit doesn't use uh, some of these things. We know from church history that God in his grace uses a lot of our stupidity and he uses a lot of our flawed methodology in spite of ourselves, but not because we are necessarily doing it right. And the point that I am trying to make here is that in the in the church age today, uh, especially in the, the modern church and the modern permutation of American evangelicalism, there are more people who have the gift of salesmanship who have come up with some new gimmick for evangelism, and all it is is taking their natural gift of gab and, and ability to sell something and apply it to evangelism. But evangelism isn't salesmanship. Uh, anybody who has a certain natural ability can sell people anything. You, can, you, you all know the proverbial salesman who can sell uh, ice cubes to an Eskimo. But that doesn't have anything to do with the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And this and evangelism is ultimately a spiritual issue that is not related to technique. James Kennedy was very well known. He's going to be with the Lord now. Uh, he was a very well-known pastor of uh, Presbyterian Church 
in uh, Fort La- I think Fort Lauderdale, Florida, built a huge church. Um, they had an annual budget of fifty million dollars. He was on the radio. Uh, he was, uh, but he built that church on a what <clears throat> basically uh, oh, what do you call these things like like uh, Amway or uh, some of these the uh, multi-level marketing. Uh, he took a multi-level marketing approach to evangelism and called it evangelism explosion. And they would uh, go out and they would go through, they would train five or six people to do evangelism. They would go out and they would knock on doors and uh, they would get people saved and they would bring them back in, train them in evangelism explosion and so multiply the effort like that. And, and I remember uh, some seminary uh, professor uh, explaining this, and, it, and they use all the numbers. It just, just looks exactly, if you've ever been involved in any kind of multi-level marketing, whether it's uh, Mary Kay Cosmetics or Shackley Vitamins or, you know, as a seminary student, I think I tried almost everything, not the cosmetics, but you just try anything to, to try to make a buck. And um, and and I remember um, in my first church there was a, a couple in the church that whose son had gone through seminary with me, and they a- actually had a car that uh, they had earned through their sales in Shackley Vitamins, and <clears throat> I went to one of the meetings and you just replace the, the name Shackley with Jesus Christ and you've got evangelism explosion. And this is not this is not the work of the Holy Spirit. This is just human viewpoint effort. Now that doesn't mean that God, the Holy Spirit, hasn't used these type of things because I believe He has. And just because the the results are that people are saved doesn't mean that gives God's stamp of approval to the methodology. God saved a lot of people using that human viewpoint methodology, despite the fact that it was a human viewpoint methodology because God honors his word and the presentation of the gospel. But we have to be careful not to be sucked into thinking that if we just have the right track or we just have the right technique, then then we're going to see spiritual growth and we're going to see a lot of evangelistic uh, results. Uh, that's just not the way it has worked in church history, and that is a distortion of the understanding of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But God the Holy Spirit is the one who is working in and through the authority of the apostles. Uh, We see it emphasized again in Acts 5.32, as uh, Peter said, we're his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And that phrase, obey him, is obeying the command to believe in uh, Jesus of Nazareth as the uh, Mashiach promised in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 53, the servant of Yahweh who would come to die, uh, bear in his own body on the cross uh, our sins, that our sins and iniquities would be laid upon him, uh, according to Acts, um, I mean, Isaiah chapter 53. Then in Acts 6, 3, we have another statement related to the uh, apostles. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. And what are they? Full of the Holy Spirit again and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So the emphasis is also on the role of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the third thing that we see uh, within this the structure here is the the result of this 
in I mean, the, the, the development of this in terms of the opposition, which comes from Satan. In Acts 5, 3, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So there, it's not just something generated from Ananias's own uh, greed or his own desire for uh, approbation or his desire for recognition that they have been so generous as to give all of the money they received from this land sale to the church, but that Satan is the one who has influenced him in this direction. Um, I'll say a couple of other things in terms of the exegesis and understanding of this phrase in a minute, but we also see as we get down into the summary statement in uh, uh, verses uh, 12 through 16 that um, at, at the conclusion of this progress report that a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and what? Those who were tormented by unclean spirits. So what, we, what happens now in Acts 5 is that the, the growth of the church is now placed within the context of the angelic conflict, Satan's rebellion, and the attack. We see the first uh, clear attack of Satan on the infant church. And this is, a, <clears throat> this is also something that is emphasized by Luke, um, several times Luke is the one, both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, who brings our attention on the fact that ultimately Satan is behind uh, the opposition uh, to the church. There are three enemies to the church and to every Christian, the sin nature, which is inside every one of us and is our own very own little traitor against God, and then uh, second, the world system, which just imitates Satan. Satan's thinking is the thinking of the world system. The Greek word is cosmos, and so we refer to that as the cosmic system, and the cosmos is Satan's way of thinking, that, that the creature can operate independently of the creator and find meaning and happiness and joy in life. But Scripture teaches that ultimately, no matter what kind of temporary pleasure there might be, uh, there is always going to be a collapse. It never lasts. Only when the creature is obedient to the, to the creator is there going to be peace and joy and stability. Jesus warned uh, the disciples in warning uh, uh, Peter prior to the crucifixion, and uh, Jesus had predicted that Peter would, uh, would uh, betray him three times, and Peter said, no, no, not me, Lord. Uh, the Lord then said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And this can be applied in some sense to the all Christians throughout the ages that Satan is uh, attacking and testing uh, the church. And we see this in Acts 5. But uh, the Lord says, but I have prayed for you, as we see evidence in the uh, high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17. He prays to the Father that Satan not, uh, not harm us. But I have prayed for you, he says here, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, as we get into this, this episode here in Acts 5, I just want to give you a summary of it and then make it bring out a couple of points. First of all, this focuses on a specific couple. Ananias is the uh, man's name, and his wife's name is uh, Sapphira. 
the Hebrew word that uh, name that would be behind Ananias is the word uh, Hananiah or Hananiah, which uh, is uh, reminiscent of a couple of names in the in the Old Testament, including one of the original names for Shadrach, Meshach, uh, one of the three Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it means Yahweh is gracious or Yah is gracious. The wife's name Sapphira means it comes from a Hebrew word or Aramaic word meaning beautiful. And so they have names that are indicative of their uh, uh, Jewish roots. And they come and they sell a possession of land. But verse 2, we're told he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife is aware of it. Uh, it is a conspiracy between them. They make a decision that, well, we need to keep some of that for for our own use. And they brought part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, there's nothing wrong with what they've done to this point. There's nothing that uh, mandated that they sell and give all of the proceeds to the church. There's no mandate that they give any of it to the church. This was a voluntary decision, which is at the essence of giving in the church age. It's based on individual volition. It is never to be, uh, you're never to be drummed into people that they should uh, give a certain amount. Never should people be motivated by guilt. Neither should uh, giving be something that is put out as, uh, some, as, as uh, evidence of someone's spirituality or where giving is done in a public manner. I mean, I've been in a lot of contexts in a lot of different churches where uh, the whole process of giving has been abused. Uh, you don't make, when you're in a situation like that, you don't get upset. You don't make an issue out of it. That's part of your grace orientation you, because that you have to, we all have to understand that there's a lot of confusion among a lot of Christians in a lot of churches, and it's not always our role to straighten everybody else out. Uh, sometimes you get put in that position, sometimes you don't, but we have to learn to uh, be gracious to people who just haven't uh, yet had the opportunity to learn uh, uh, what the Bible says about about grace giving. It should be done in private, it's between each individual and the Lord, and it is part of our personal response to understanding what God has done in our life. And it is a responsibility that God has placed upon every single believer. It's not an option. It is part of our spiritual life. But they uh, they decide to hold back. What they do, though, is they come and they say that they have given all of it, the, all of the money that they made from the land, and um, and that's the deception. Is that and this really is a power play on the part of Ananias and Sapphira. They want to have recognition uh, as much as the apostles and the prophets and everybody else who seems to have God the Holy Spirit working in their life. And so there is a desire on their part for this sort of of recognition and uh, honor that comes from uh, others in the body of Christ. So there is, in a sense a measure of competition with the, uh, with the apostles and thinking that they can pull one over on them. They don't understand the authority 
and the role of the apostle that they're 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 privy to information that uh, uh, that no one else is, and they are really it's a subtle form of rebellion against the authority of the apostles because they're 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 lying to them. But God the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter what is going on, and Peter confronts him and recognizes what the ultimate source of this temptation is. So this, first of all, reminds us a little bit of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. This is, an, I think, intentional on the part of Luke is that we think of the temptation of Eve to uh, disobey God and eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and of Adam, and that in the garden there was a serious penalty imposed of spiritual death, and then they, the consequences of being removed uh, from, the, from the garden. So <clears throat> when we read this, we see this parallel. You have a man and his wife, and you have the temptation uh, that comes from uh, from Satan. So there's, uh, that is a specific parallel. So Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land uh, for yourself? And then Peter makes it very clear in his explanation that he had every right uh, of disposal of his own private property without having to uh, deceive anyone. Peter goes on to say in verse 4, while it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived of this thing in your heart? Now notice, in verse 3 he says, Satan uh, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't, uh, he's not saying that, oh, the devil made you do it. He is saying that, the, that Satan is the influence, the tempter, but it is still Ananias's decision and responsibility for, uh, for what he did. He says, was it not under your control? Why have you conceived of this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the emphasis is still on personal responsibility, even though there is an external influence from God, the, uh, from, I mean, excuse me, from Satan. So then we have the results in verse 5, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, breathed his last. What's the result? Great fear came upon all those who heard these things. That's going to be repeated again in verse, verse 11. Now, in terms of parallels from the Old Testament, there's three episodes in the Old Testament that are similar to this. The first I've already alluded to and described, which is in uh, Genesis chapter 3. But the second is an episode that may be less familiar to you, and this is the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. And what happens in Joshua chapter 7 is this comes at the end uh, of the battle of Jericho. And prior to the battle of Jericho, God had uh, given the Israelites specific orders that they were to annihilate every man, woman, and child, every, uh, every uh, domesticated beast, and that they were uh, to take whatever valuables they found, the gold, the silver, and they were to take that, and that would be set apart to God in, in, in the temple. And what happened was that Achan 
uh, in um, an act, uh, again, of disobedience to God and selfishness, disobeys God's instructions. He uh, takes some of the booty for himself, and he buries it under his tent. But spiritual disobedience has consequences, not just in our own individual lives, but also in the lives of other people. And at this uh, nascent uh, infant stage of the early Israelite nation, as they've just come across the Jordan, this is the first battle, God is going to make it clear that the battle is his, and he is the one who makes all the rules. And so he comes down very hard on Achan. And what happens is the the Israelites go to the second battle, which is at the uh, city of Ai, and they they get involved in a battle, and they just get defeated, and they come back with with their uh, tail tucked between their legs, and Joshua blames God for their defeat and the loss of life, and and, uh, God says the reason they were defeated was because of sin in the camp. And that they needed to be cleansed from this sin, that they needed to be sanctified. And so there's this process where God takes them through this narrowing down uh, procedure where it narrows down to the tribe and then to the clan and finally to the family of Achan. And then there has to be a cleansing, a sanctifying of the nation uh, from this sin. And so uh, Achan is executed along with his entire family. And then um, all of his goods are confiscated. And so there are consequences that extend beyond just the individual. And it seems rather harsh to us, but God is doing something significant in, in these kinds of episodes in showing that he, he is not this kind of wimpy little God who's going to, oh, well, you know, they're sinners. We understand that. That's okay. Pat him on the head. This is at a foundational element where God is establishing his authority and the importance of obedience to God within the organization, in that case Israel, in this case uh, with the church. There's another example that occurs in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, with the sin of Gehazi. Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. And this is the episode where Naaman the Syrian Gentile has come to, uh, has come to Elisha to be healed of his leprosy. And after he's healed of his leprosy, he, he returns back. Uh, he wants to give a big reward to Elisha. Elisha rejects it. But Gehazi decides, you know, I want a little bit of that reward. So he uh, gets away from his master Elisha, secretly follows after uh, Naaman, talks to him, gets a little reward, comes back to Elisha, and Elisha knows what's happened. He says, where have you been? And Gehazi lied to him. And because Gehazi lied to Elisha, then what happens is the leprosy of Naaman goes on to Gehazi, and he's a leper for the rest of his life. Seems kind of harsh. But what I'm showing is that this is a pattern from Genesis 3 on that God is serious about his word and not lying uh, to God. So he is protecting the early church. Now, one other thing to say about about, um, Peter's statement to Ananias. When he says, why has Satan filled your heart? There have been some who have suggested that this is demon possession or Satan possession, that Satan possessed Ananias. But that's not the verbiage here. We may say in English, have an English idiom, well, uh, 
jealousy has filled your soul, where we put jealousy as the subject of the verb, and we talk about jealousy as the content of something that fills someone's soul. But that's an English idiom. Let's not read that back into uh, into the Greek here and into the language of the New Testament. We have this statement, Satan filled uh, your heart to lie. Satan is the subject of the of the verb, and he performs the action of the verb, uh, which is indicated by the fact that this is an aorist active uh, indicative of, uh, of pimplamy again. And what does he do? He fills the heart to, for a purpose to lie. It's influence. Satan is in the content. When we look at all these other passages that use this same verb in relation to the Holy Spirit, it talk, the, the Holy Spirit, who is the content of the filling, is in the genitive case. It, it isn't the Holy Spirit filled their heart with something else. It is that they're full of genitive clause full of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit being the content of the filling. If Satan is the content of the filling, if this is satanic possession, it would be they were full of Satan or he was full of Satan. So it is not demon possession or Satan possession whatsoever. That kind of language is not here at all. Uh, Ananias, as a believer, cannot be filled uh, with or indwelt by Satan. This is an external Influence. That's what demonic influence or satanic influence is. It is the influence of thinking that ultimately goes back to Satan as the prince and the power of the air of the God of this age who is blinding the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So this is part of the role of Satan, and he does, it doesn't necessarily mean that he does this directly with people, but in this case, because of Peter's statement, uh, I believe that there is a direct satanic involvement uh, here uh, in his influence on uh, Ananias. Now, the result is fear. And this is reinforced in verse 43. I mean, in verse, uh, um, <clears throat> this verse, Acts 5, uh, 5, 4 or excuse me, 5, 5, the second part, great fear came upon those who heard these things. And again, in verse 11, we also see it in Acts 9.31, the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. This is more than just uh, respect for God. This is a serious respect bordering. It's not fear in the sense of being afraid but it is a recognition that the consequences are serious. God is real, and I am not going to disobey him. It is that fear that uh, I relate to when on a few occasions that I disobeyed my mother, uh, and <clears throat> she just said, well, I'll let your father take care of it when he came home. And then you just knew it was all over with, and that if I survived another day, then that would just be due to the grace of God, but it wasn't going to be due to the grace of my parents at all. So it is a recognition that that's the last thing in the world you want to do is have God deal with you in terms of divine discipline. Then in Acts 19.17, uh, related to the uh, <clears throat> miracles related to the Apostle Paul, uh, this became known to all the Jews and Greeks on Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was uh, magnified. So what happens here is Ananias dies instantly. That's what the surprise is here. He doesn't 
get a chance to change his mind, confess his sin, or repent. It's the sin unto death, or as I facetiously say, the first person who is slain in the spirit, which is a, if you're not familiar with the charismatic concept, then go watch Benny Hinn sometime. Um, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and people realize that, that God is serious about his word. The young men come in, they wrap him up, uh, carry him out. Remember, this is a dry desert climate, but it's warm, so you, burial should be fast. They take him out. They bury him quickly. Uh, three hours later, Sapphira comes in. She's completely unaware of what has happened, and Peter then uh, begins to interrogate her and says, well, tell me whether you sold the land for... And then he mentions the amount of money, and she said yes, and says, well, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And so immediately he uh, confronts her with the fact that what they have done is to try to test God, which is an idea that is evident in the Old Testament in various places. When Israel disobeys God and puts him to the test as to whether or not he is going to be true to his word. You can see some examples of that in Exodus 17, verses 2 and 7, in Numbers 14:22, and in Deuteronomy 6:16. This is provoking God to judgment by disobeying him. And so she then dies um, uh, immediately, verse 10, and the young men come in and find her dead and carry her out and bury her uh, with her husband. The result is that great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. And then we get a summary of the progress report in verses uh, 12 through 16. And um, again, there's this same kind of thing emphasized as we have in Acts 2. Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders are done among the people. There's miracles. Uh, they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. This is the colonnade area within the temple area, so they're still meeting there. And it says, Yet none of the rest dared to join them, but the people esteemed them uh, highly. And the idea here is that there is a people are uh, hesitant to join them because of what has just happened. There's the fear of the Lord that has come upon them. But nevertheless, believers continue to be added to, the, to their number, verse 14, multitudes of both men and women, uh, so that they bring the sick out on the streets. And we see the same kind of thing going on as in the ministry of Jesus. And they just hope that if Peter passed by, that when his shadow fell on them, uh, that they might be healed. Um, they understood the power and the authority and the signs and wonders of the apostles. Uh, verse 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities, bringing sick people, those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So again, we have this aspect of the spiritual warfare and the role of demons. We'll get into that uh, a later time, talk a little bit more about angelic conflict. So that takes us through this this this. All of this from 4.32 down through 5.16 is a progress report. And then we have a new episode that occurs uh, and that begins to be described starting in verse 17, and we'll come back to that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. May, be, we, we, may we be reminded that you are still the same God who rules over the church and how serious it is to 
uh, disobey you and to treat your word lightly and to abuse your grace. Uh, Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge us to be faithful to to you, faithful to your word, and that we might not uh, give up or relax in our desire to pursue uh, excellence and in our spiritual life and growth in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.